Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey guys, happy holidays. Just wanted to remind you that the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. If you like this show and you want to support it, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. It's the holiday season. It's a good time to uh, show some support for the podcasts in your life. Thank you for listening. Happy holidays. Let's get started with the show. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person and just Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles. Happy holiday season. Did you make it through Thanksgiving? Everything okay? You get into some good screaming fights with your family? You resenting people right now? You on an airplane? Where are you? You back at work? You hating life? It's almost over. December. Just got to get through the, you know, December into 2018. We're going to get uh, some indictments on Christmas Day. It's all going to end on Christmas Day. Didn't you hear that? That's my theory. I'm sticking to it. Panio Giannopoulos is my guest today. He's got a great new story collection out. It's called How to Get Into Our House and Where We Keep the Money. It's available now from four, let me see, four-way books. I was going to say four ways, which would make some sense. But it's called four-way books, like a four-way stop sign. I'm spending too much time on this, but you, you know what I'm saying. Panio Giannopoulos, his second appearance on this program, the story collection one more time is called How to Get Into Our House and Where We Keep the Money. Before we get to that, I do want to read some mail. I'm a little bit behind on mail. And before I forget, if you want to write to me about this program or about your life or whatever it is that you would want to write to me about, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. 
gmail.com. Uh, a listener named Stephanie writes, Dear Brad, earbuds being ripped out of your ears on things like door handles and treadmill arms is jarring. It's like a reminder that we don't really have control over our own lives. One second, you're rocking out. Then everything is snatched away from you. You have to scramble for the dangling earbud and put it back in your ear, and you've missed the best part of the song, and probably you've made a visible sign of being startled, like you jerked or something, like a falling, uh, like a falling dream. And if you're in public, it's embarrassing, even though in reality, no one is looking at you because no one really gives a shit because everyone is consumed with their own lives. Thanks for the podcast. Cheers, Stephanie. So, uh, just to give some context, you know, I was saying that one of the things in life that happens that causes me to experience like flashes of real rage is when an earbud gets ripped out of my ear, turns me into a monster. Oh, actually I shouldn't say that because I have a thing against calling other human beings monsters or calling yourself a monster, but you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? It's like the beast within me comes out just by, because an earbud got pulled out of my ear. And yet I have received uh, via Twitter, or uh, in this case, email, uh, a lot of responses from listeners who have a similar experience. What is it about that? Get an earbud ripped out of your ear. You freak out. <laughs> White hot rage. And I guess maybe it is a control thing. It startles you. I think that maybe that's what it is. It startles you. It's a combination of being startled and being pissed off at the same time. Nothing good happens in that state. So thank you, Stephanie, for uh, writing to me. I appreciate it. Thank you for explaining that to me. And, you know, I do want to, uh, since I brought it up, I do want to add that, I, I, you know, I, you see a lot of this th uh, these days because there is a lot of bad behavior uh, all throughout our world, all throughout our uh, culture. You know, I don't need to sit here and enumerate it for you, but I very often see people referring to other people as monsters. And I don't think it's helpful. I don't like the dehumanizing, like otherizing thing. I know it's tempting. I know it's a shorthand, you know, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. Maybe there are certain instances where it's totally, um, you know, valid. But I think generally speaking, when you start to talk about other human beings as being monsters, that means they're not human beings, which means that like what? I don't know. It just makes me uncomfortable. So, but then again, you know, it's, it's not that simple. Cause like I can think to myself, you know what, this person is not just like some sort of monster. This is a person who, you know, for whatever reason did some horrible thing. Like they did some violent, horrible thing, but then you realize like when they were a child, some violent, horrible thing happened to them. And so it gives you a sense of their humanity and why, you know, they may have been led to, uh, behave in this way or whatever. You know what I'm saying? But then I, I remember reading not too long ago, an article, and I think it was like the Atlantic monthly. And it was this terrifying article about psychopaths and, uh, like the, just the, the genetics of psychopathy, if that's the right, uh, terminology and how some kids are just born psycho. Like you turn around and like your three-year-old is trying to light your two-year-old on fire and like things like that. You know what I'm saying? Like it goes beyond like normal kid hijinks and uh, tantrum throwing and bad behavior or whatever. It's like something's wrong. Just something's wrong in the wiring. 
but I guess that's human too. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns, depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Anyway, Panio Giannopoulos is my guest. Uh, great to see him again. It's been five years since we uh, first spoke, and uh, he's got this story collection out, How to Get Into Our House and Where We Keep the Money, available now from 4-Way Books. Here he is, folks. This is Panio Giannopoulos. <laughs> I mean, I had it with this collection because I was going through it afterwards and I thought, okay, what, what is similar? You know, what's the themes? And I noticed one thing was envy was running through a lot of them. And I thought, okay, that's, didn't, I didn't even realize I was writing about that. I thought I was writing about sort of love stories and, um, but real love stories where things go wrong <laughs> yeah. and, you know, in, in love triangles and people, you know, uh, but I thought, oh yeah, you're right. Envy is, envy is in a lot of this because a lot of my characters are definitely, in a crisis in that sense. Like they want something else. They want to, that was one thing I, I mean, since we're in LA, let's talk about movies and TV a little bit. One thing I really noticed as I was working on the stories, especially, especially the later stories was I really did look at TV as a model in the sense of like, you take an hour long drama, right? And like the main thing was for me, what I don't like about a lot of short stories and I'm not slagging off short stories. Obviously, I love them, and, and there are tons of great ones. But the ones that I don't like are the ones where sort of nothing happens, right? And I thought, okay, so things have to happen in these stories, which sounds really reductive and maybe embarrassingly <laughs> direct. But I thought, okay, like this has to be a story where if I were sitting down with a friend, like here we are, we're talking, right? And I started telling you the story, two minutes wouldn't go by, and you'd be like, Ponyo, are you like, where is this going? Right. Like, is there any payoff? Like, what's happening? And so that was a big thing where I thought, right, in TV, like things happen. You can't just have people sitting on couches feeling shitty all day. Like eventually someone has to go do something. Right. Um, and that really did inform a lot of the stories and sort of caused a lot of conflict to unfold. And, and envy is a great motivating, you know, um, action. So was there a consistency in terms of like the composition of these stories? Um, did you, is there any kind of pattern, detectable pattern to how they came to be like you sat down and you, you started with a problem or you started with, right. a, you know, um, 
I very I mostly started with a character and and I guess to some degree a situation, yeah. I have a character and then I figure out what's going on with them. Like what's there's something lacking or there's something you know, one of the stories um I start with a character I mean this is yeah, this is the probably the best example called Love and Heuristics. So I start with this character and within a paragraph or two, I mean the issue is that he is just not romantic. He's not sentimental at all. To the point where it's problematic, where women keep breaking up with him. Um and he's not that he's oblivious about it, but he's kind of reluctant to change. So I thought, okay, here's the situation, this guy. And then, and that was actually based on an anecdote of, of about a friend of mine, but he, um, he ends up falling for this girl and then realizing he has to change or he's going to lose her too. So, okay, all set up, set up, set up. So what he does is cause he's kind of pretty handy and, and, uh, with computers and such is he takes an app. It's just like a calendar reminder app and he essentially updates it. So it will send him, uh, romantic prompts like things to do so it, it sort of he creates this little database of romantic ideas you know pulled cold from like websites and dating websites and stuff so he'll be with his girlfriend and it'll say it'll suddenly he'll get a little alert on his phone and it'll say like ask her about her day or like ask her what she thinks about her sister's boyfriend or whatever and it's like this dating coach that he created himself um and so that was like the premise of course things spin out of control and that doesn't work is that romantic just asking somebody how their day went well it can lead to at least it's an expression of interest right and so one of his issues was that and it would be things like bring her flowers take you know it wasn't you're right it wasn't just conversations got it um but so that was very much like an idea i thought what happens when this guy like tries to fix this problem and it doesn't you know like what actually spins out i'm grading myself on how romantic i am <laughs> as you say this i'm like fuck well yeah yeah i don't know how romantic i am either <laughs> but and and then other stories though for example start with just um I was one day I was hanging out with, um, you know, well, you've got little kids, right? So you end up becoming friends with like your kids, friends, parents, Sure, you're just around them all the time. So one of my, my older daughter has a friend and she was hanging out. This is actually in LA. So we were at the beach, God, this is a long time ago. And I was talking to the mom and then the mother's mother showed up like the grandmother. Sure. And she was like tall and beautiful with this like long, like silvery hair. And she was in a bodysuit. She was in a wetsuit. She was going to go body surfing and stuff. And I was like, wow, she's incredible. She's amazing. And then I thought, what would it be like to date her? Like, what's, you know, what's it like to like, just like date, like, why not? Well, why not date someone like 20 years older? Yeah. Like you never, I never really, you you think of like Harold and Maude, which is like a dark comedy. I'm like, what if you did it straight? Like you really were just going to date an older woman because you just thought she was attractive. So then I had to back into like, well, who's the character and what's the story? And I wanted to make it more interesting than just dating. So I turned it into a triangle where I take her daughter and I make her just awful. <laughs> I mean, really, je- this is where the jealousy comes in, right? So she's sort of jealous and always kind of intimidated by her mother because her mother's very attractive and, and, and cool and like nice and like everything she doesn't want her mother to be. And she likes this guy. And then the guy ends up starting dating his mother, dating her mother. And so then it's this love triangle. So that was, that really was just a moment where it was just speculation. So I'd say half the stories are just, huh? Like, I wonder what would happen if. Do you, do you like carry around a notebook? Are you one of those people? Or do you just like, you have these moments like where you're on the beach with your kid and you see, you know, you have this question arise in your mind and then it's, it's sticky enough that it stays with you. Yeah. I take notes and I never use the notes. So the, the ones that are sticky, I write. Yeah. And then I have this like file of makes me feel better about yeah. not, not oh taking God. notes. Don't bother. You'll remember <laughs> the ones you really do. The good ones stick. They really do. And when you're really, when you're writing, like I'm working on a novel right now, you know, you just force the stuff in anyway. Cause you're like, Oh, that's neat. And then eventually you end up cutting it because you forced it. So what is uh what's up with the novel? How far along are you on that? 
pretty far about two-thirds of the way through oh wow yeah that's a good place that's a good place to be it feels good because you're coming kind of coming around now like the third turn yeah and you know you know there i know for me what happens when i'm writing a novel is in the beginning i feel like i'm not gonna have enough material right i'm like oh this is just a short story this is just a novella and then as it goes bigger and bigger then i'm like oh no god i have too much oh no no now what and then right around the two-thirds point you pull back on your expectations and you think, oh, you know what? This is actually not a huge story. This is, you kind of go back to your original, like this isn't so big and you can rein it in and really focus on the ending. How much, like, are you one of those people like you just go, 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 like you'll write like a story and you'll wind up cutting half of it because you have, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. or do you plod and like every, you know, weigh every word I, and I plod. I wish I always wanted to be the guy who just like knocks out 5,000 words and like goes and has a drink. No, I'm like one of those write 300 words guys and like fixate and fixate and turn the sentences over and over. Yep. And, um, and whenever I go, I mean, I don't do a lot of like conferences and stuff I, here and there, but I'm always the person who immediately tells everyone it's okay to not be like a speedy, shitty first draft writer. Slow and steady wins the it's, race. It's all right. Yeah. If you do, I mean, but do you work every day? Are you pretty I disciplined? Do. I write every morning. You yeah. do? Yeah. What time I, do you get up? Well, I get up at six thirty because of the kids. Oh, right. And get them ready for school. But I, I commute into into the into New York City. I have a uh, day job there. So what I do is I ride on the train every day. Do you really? Every day for about forty minutes, and then I'll write during like lunch hour, and then I'll often write on the train ride home. But by then I'm kind of burnt. I might oh. just like play around with dialogue. Well, so what are you writing on on the train? You have phones. Just my laptop. Or your laptop. Yeah. You have your headphones on. Yep, headphones. That's kind of concentrated, and you're in motion. You're in motion, and and there's nothing else. There's no Wi-Fi. Thank God. Thank God. And then there's just no, there's nothing else I'm going to do. I mean, I look around when I first moved to New York, back to New York, I should say from LA. And I was thinking, okay, where am I going to write? How am I going to do this? And I was dreading the commute. And I thought, oh, I'll just write, you know, on weekends, I'll wake up really early, which I've never been able to do. And then I sat on the train the first couple of days and I saw everybody playing like solitaire and, you know, Candy Crush and watching shows on Netflix. And so, and it was just so depressing. I was like, I don't want to do that. Like, yeah. I've never, so I've never easy. played a game of candy crush in my life. Oh, I, I played it. I got into it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, Oh, I'm not better than candy crush. I understand the appeal I, of candy. I crush. am better than candy crush. God bless you. Yeah, um, that. but yeah, so I, having writing just be the thing. And also knowing I only have 40 minutes. Like it's just, I, I was going to say, it's like, it's like this. I mean, if you can pull it off, it sounds like it's this concentrated. It, yeah. And you're, you're just you're going, you just go. It's like a sprint. Yep. It is. You sit down and you just go. And, and I always know what I'm going to work on. So I do a bit of the Hemingway thing where you leave it. And you leave it where you know. You know? Yeah. So I know, okay, this is what I'm the, the one real weakness to it. I find is that, um, you miss your I'm, train stops or that's the problem. <laughs> uh, you get robbed often. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, the problem is you can't, um, you can't think through a problem the way you can, like when you're sitting at your desk, you've got three, four hours and you play with all these different versions of things. Sometimes I'll get impatient because I just want to, I want to move ahead and then I'll do it kind of knowing it's the wrong direction. And then you end up wasting time. And, you got to go back and yeah. fix it and do it yeah. all over again. So exactly. did you write this whole book in 40 minute bursts? Basically this one? No, I wrote a bunch of them in 40 minute bursts. I would say maybe half of them. And you, and you said you write at your lunch break too. Yeah. Well, sometimes when I can, when you can, so you'll yeah. take your laptop down to a coffee shop or yep. sit at your desk. Yeah. I usually I... won't sit at my desk because I find it almost impossible to write at work. I'm just in a different frame of mind. What's so your, I'll... what's your day job? Uh, I'm the editorial director for a website called Helio. Okay. What yeah. is Helio? Uh, it's kind of like Ted talks where we have, we were in a platform, digital platform for nonfiction authors, so oh, cool. we, but we curate conversations between them. So it's still literary. 
yeah. in a way. Yeah, and it's a lot of editing. In fact, it's been interesting for my dialogue because part of my job is to edit down these conversations like ours, right? So they'll come in at 8,000 words and I have to cut them down to 2,500 words. So while I'm doing it, it's a great education in what people actually talk like. So I take everything that I cut and I try and think, how do I use that in fiction to make it more realistic? Yeah, that would be a good, I mean, that would be a good lesson, but a lot of it's got to be like jumbled nonsense because the, oh, yeah. the way people talk is a mess. It is. And, and it's, I mean, it's an education. I've never spent so much time reading transcripts in my life. It's wild how people just don't talk remotely linearly. Like they just circle and circle and they'll jump back to something from you know five minutes earlier and people just pick it up. Like it's nothing. No, the brain, yeah, the brain's a mess. Yeah. I go, it can be a mess, <laughs> but I say that and I'm amazed whenever I am, you know, when you're in the presence of like a really keen intellect or on like your best days where, um, you're sharp mm -hmm. and you're caffeinated. Yeah. Maybe, you mm. know, but when you, I will sometimes read transcripts or interviews, or I will listen to somebody speak and it sounds like they're speaking really in like beautifully sculpted mm -hmm. paragraphs. Uh, I feel like Obama can do that. I yeah. don't know. I mean, I don't want to, um, deify, but you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, no, I think some people can do it, but I think that's just practice. Is it? Yeah. Well, it. obviously there's a basic intellect at play and Obama's a pretty special guy, but I know that there are people that we've had, um, you know, all these different writers. And so I'll look at transcripts and some people are really polished and they're really clean. And those are people invariably are, have been at it a long time and just done it a bunch. They've just done it a bunch. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's like from memory, but yeah. Um, well that's cool. And that's, that's impressive. That's impressive discipline, but it's sort of enforced cause you got to take the train and what else are you going to do? Right. But then I find on weekends, right. So I, my weekend, you know, not wide open cause you know, kids are married, et cetera, but you know, I'll go up to the attic. Okay. You know, on a Sunday morning, nothing planned until noon. Right. So I have to take my daughter to soccer at noon. So it's eight thirty AM. I got my laptop. And I will sit there and just not get anything done for you know an hour and a half. I'll just sort of like fuss with things. I'll rewrite little bits, you know. I'll do some research and I'll procrastinate like with the best of them. Because you're not on the train. Because I'm not on the just train. Just get on. Can you can you get on the train? <laughs> no, I think about. It, I'm like one day I'm not going to have like a job in the city, and I'm literally just going to buy a ticket for the train. I'm going to ride it there and ride it back, and that hour and twenty minutes is going to be my writing day. Well, yeah, I mean, because I've like lately I've been like with I have this day job and I've got kids, and you know it's like you have to find little yeah. pockets of time, and then you also have to find some peace and quiet. Yeah, and I feel like you know if I'm at if I'm at the office, it's not happening, and if I'm at home. You saw, I feel, I feel like it's the pressure of, oh, they're right down there. I should, mm -hmm. maybe I should be down there. Like, what yeah. am I doing? Not like hiding in the garage or whatever. And, um, lately I've been, uh, doing my friend, Melissa Broder, uh, has been doing where she gets in her car and mm -hmm. she'll go like park in like the parking lot at like a Ralph's right? and she'll just talk into her iPhone oh, really? and use that as, and as like a first draft. Okay. And it's a disaster. Cause like the thing doesn't even hear yeah, you properly. It's not great. Like but you, a, you can't, yeah. you can't like the rule is you can't go back and edit. Yeah. You just got to like barf it out essentially, wow. which is anathema to me because I'm like a plotter like you, like I'll mm -hmm. sit there and like weigh each word and like I will be editing as I write. Yeah, I do that. But I'm sort of forcing time. myself to just like get in the car. But are you typing or speaking? I'm speaking. Because, okay, I, this, that's very interesting that you bring that up because I tried that when I was in, I went to grad school, totally unrelated for business, but, um, and I was short on time at work and I was commuting. So I got a dictation program and I would dictate all my emails. Okay. So from there I thought, what if I dictate what I'm writing, like the fiction? And I couldn't, I found I've very difficult to be creative if I weren't, if I was not typing, yeah. there's something about the act of typing, which activated my imagination and just made everything sound better. And when I spoke 
But then again, you've done 500 of these podcasts. So yeah, maybe I, you're just good at talking. Now. Well, but I mean, <laughs> I think that, I think that, uh, first of all, like whatever, I, I mean, I, I, I am in the midst of doing this. So like, who knows what I'm getting mm-hmm. could be just a completely useless disaster. Is one of the rules you don't listen to it. Uh, no, I'm not looking at, I mean, read it. It's, I mean, I'm speaking and then it types it out. Oh, so okay. I'm not recording myself. But like part of the, part of the deal, I think from an efficiency standpoint, at least as I imagine it is that I'm using voice to text. So the end result is going to be written mm-hmm. and I can copy it, paste it into a word doc and start to sift through it once it's done. But I kind of feel like, you know how when you shoot documentary film, you shoot like a ton of film. Yeah. Hours like, and hours like, and like hours. Like the ratio, down, the yeah. ratio to like shot film versus what's used is like way yeah. higher in, in documentary than it is in, in, cause there's no script. Mm-hmm. I feel like with respect to, to the doing, you know, whatever I'm doing, um, you know, this, uh, project that I'm uh, supposedly working on, I feel like it's sort of like that. I've got to, I've got to get like 200,000 words. Oh my God. If I hope to have like 50, I mean, maybe even more. Yeah. So, well, what is, can you tell me a little bit about the project or is that going to, I mean, I don't even know if I know what it is, but it's like, I wrote, um, like, I don't even know if you know what's been going on, but my, my, uh, my son was born with some health issues. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So it's been, it was really rough. It's been a tough adjustment, but, uh, I wrote a novel about it and it was like a really, really sad novel. And it's one of those things where, uh, you've heard the story before where like people go through stuff and then you try to write a novel about it and it's either too close to the mm-hmm. bone or it's just too fucking sad. And so like people sure. read it and they just go, Oh, so it's not, it's not good for the reader. Yeah. So I think what I'm trying to do is readdress that same subject matter, but from a different angle, like I, I'm very mm. interested in going there because how could you not, I don't know what else to talk about in writing than that, yeah. but I, I want I'm like very fascinated with trying to do it in a way that, um, is elevated beyond just like sad feelings. Does that make sense? Uh, I'm, I mean, not to turn it back to me, but I, the novel I'm writing right now is based on like very dark, sad family stuff, like my mother and my father and their deaths and all that. And so I'm facing a similar situation where I thought, first of all, I couldn't write about it for years. It's been you know, six years since my dad died. And so I didn't do what you did, but I just couldn't, I just couldn't get it out. Um, but also I thought this is so fucking depressing who's going to want to read it. So that's been one of the issues is how do I make this still honest and still real, but, um, find a way. So you want to read it. So it's, so it's entertaining in a way. I know entertaining sounds like such a light word, but you know what I mean? Just so no, it's readable. We, so we were talking about the, experience it. Well, we were talking about that earlier with respect to your stories is that, you know, TV as a model yeah. shit's got to happen. And like, I keep going back to Twitter cause I read too much Twitter, but, uh, Stephen King, tweeted something about that show stranger things which i haven't yeah, seen but he was yeah. he was like stranger things too he's like balls to the like pure uncut balls to the wall entertainment or something like that he's like yeah. that's how you do it folks yeah and i read that and i was like yeah <laughs> like that's the whole secret like just fucking entertain people like write yeah. a, a great story that like you know mm-hmm. it, it goes back to what you were saying about um sometimes like these really obvious like pithy ideas mm-hmm can feel like a big epiphany. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, Oh yeah. Make it entertaining. Like, well, yeah, oh yeah. You, stuff needs to happen. Of course, Stuff has to happen. And yeah. it's easy for some reason to lose sight of that. And I think also as a writer, especially when you're in the world of sort of like literary fiction and, and you're doing like the serious books, right? So you can't, you, you're not relying on like genre formulas and, and sort of, and to be fair, it sounds pejorative, but I mean like 
well, like proven techniques for keeping a reader's interest. Like you've discarded those. Yeah. So, and yet there are good techniques that you can take back. I mean, I was reading, um, uh, it was called, uh, which book was it? Uh, when we were, when we were orphans, the, um, the, the Ishiguro book. Okay. Okay. This is years ago when it first came out and he did this move and I couldn't believe it. Cause I thought, cause I mean, you know, I was very like pretentious and smug when I was reading it. He did this move where he's like, and I, and, uh, it was like something out of the Da Vinci code where the narrator would say, you know, and I was about to learn something that would change my life forever. And I was like, give me a break, you know? <laughs> and yet like, am I going to keep reading? Absolutely. <laughs> right, like right. who's going to stop there? Yeah. And, but I remember thinking you can't do that. Like you're not allowed. You're supposed to be a good writer. Good writers don't do that. And then I thought, um, oh, maybe they do. Maybe, maybe it is okay. Yeah. Like you can just write. And you can, you can just tell an interesting, compelling story. If they keep turning the pages, right. if they get some, you know, it's like, I don't know. I, I, I can do the same kind of thing where I box myself in with these like self-imposed rules or, right. you know, and that's never the answer. But at the same time, there is such a thing as like shitty writing. There is such a thing as <laughs> well, like yeah. bad decisions in fiction. There's terror. Yeah, there is such can... a thing as like taking an easy way out or like using like a really hackneyed, like, you know, like, Oh yeah, absolutely. There's millions of ways to get it wrong. Don't get me. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I just think that sometimes erring on the side of preciousness can really hurt you. Okay. So let me ask you this, cause this is something that I'm facing and it might, you might be facing it too, since like the stuff that we're doing is like, you know, on similar terrain. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you are, and I'm, this is for lack of a better word, but if you're addressing spiritual matters in a book, fiction or nonfiction, sure. how do you write about that stuff without seeming like an asshole? Like, I feel like it's really, really hard. And I also struggle, I think, with feelings of qualification. Like, am I even qualified to talk about this in a book? Do you yeah, ever get that? Of course you are. I guess so. But yeah. I, I can sometimes feel like, do people need to hear this from me? Well, well, okay. I do think there's a difference between nonfiction and fiction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly with fiction, I feel like you can write about anything you want. Right. And it just has to be good. So, I think I'm talking about non. Nonfiction is trickier. I still think you can write about anything in nonfiction. I do feel like, okay, if you're not an expert in uh, the field or whatever, when most of us aren't experts in anything, <laughs> then I think you just have to work that sort of relative amateur curious status into the narrative. That's it. You know? It's like, yeah, like I'm now I'm going to pull another quote out, but George Carlin, he's like, most people aren't very good at anything. <laughs> <laughs> another one that for some reason I can't forget, but, uh, it's the truth though. You know, like how many people, how many people in, have you ever met in your life who you feel like had real mastery of something? Have yeah. you, and, and like, also, have you ever been in the presence of somebody who you felt like was truly like next level realized as a human being? You know, um, I used to go to, I don't know if this is just the fog of going to a therapist and thinking your therapist is amazing, Yeah, but I did know this, uh, amazing therapist and I felt like she, what's her number. (laughs) I'll give it to you. Yeah, please. She she lives in LA. Hook me up. She's amazing. And I felt like she really was, um, special. Like she had come to this place. She did a lot of meditation and, and, um, I, she just seemed to me like, I'm sure she's human. She has her faults, but she was something else. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I think about that. Like I'd love to, cause you always, you read these stories about somebody and they're always telling you how, like, I couldn't, I couldn't believe, you know, I went up into the mountains in this village in India yeah. and met this person and immediately started weeping. I'm like, what? <laughs> like this, this shit doesn't happen to yeah. me. Yeah. You know? I did have one moment, you know, I used to teach martial arts in, in the city and, uh, 
my instructor, Grandmaster Han, he had uh, like a meditation instructor from the the Blue Mountains of Korea. I think if I'm remembering that correctly. Okay. And he came one day, and I remember I went to shake his hand, and he like looked through me. Can I get <laughs> his was, number too? <laughs> <laughs> it was the most disconcerting experience. It actually wasn't pleasant. It wasn't unpleasant, but it felt revealing in the sense like I did not want to be seen inside and out. Yeah. I was just saying hi. And I felt exposed in a way that I never felt exposed before. And to your point, I tried to write about that in a story. I put that in a, in a story that's not in the collection. And it's really hard not to fumble it. It felt like all the language sounds overwrought and sort of silly. It's hard, and, yeah. It's like, how yeah. do you, it's really hard to be, cause I, the thing is like, uh, I say this from a, uh, the perspective of a writer, but I always, I also say it from the perspective of a reader. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of a connoisseur of books about like mindfulness and Buddhism. Like I've read a ton of that stuff and most of it is really bad in my, yeah. in my estimation. And the ones, the people that do pull it off, like I, f- I find myself having like real reverence for, because it's like, it's very easy to screw it up. It feels like it's very yeah. easy to come off seeming, um, ridiculous almost. Mm-hmm. And well, it's so hard to, you know, put into words these, I mean, they're almost indescribable experiences. Yeah. So two thirds of the way through the book. Yeah. Uh, are you enjoying it? I am. You are. Yeah, I am. I mean, I, it's funny. I was talking to my friend about it tonight cause he, he we were discussing it cause a lot of it, you know, is personal and painful, right? A lot of it is grief and, I worry that um, I'm not diving into like the sadness enough and I'm probably gonna have to go back in another draft and add that. But uh, I am enjoying it because it's also a family story and it's based a lot on my family growing up, even though, you know, I add siblings and I change details and, and to make it interesting, I, I make the parents much worse. I feel, I mean, my parents aren't around to be offended, <laughs> but I actually called up my sister and warned her. I said, Hey, just so you know, I turned dad into a total asshole <laughs> in this novel. And I don't want you to think like, that's how I thought about him. I love dad always did. And, you know, and she's like, yeah, no, I know. I'm like, okay, just so you know, because anyone who reads this is going to think like, wow, your dad was like a gambling addict. Your dad, and I was like, he's not at all. He was very like financially careful. And, yeah. um, so, but it's fun to take, you know, take your life and just twist things around. And well, you're giving yourself it. some distance too. Yeah. Like you have to almost. Yeah. Maybe that's the mistake. I think that's kind of the mistake that I made, even though I did some of that. Um, but you have to, I think you have to find ways to make, even, even when I guess when you're dealing with the difficult stuff, like you've got to find ways to, to make it fun. Mm-hmm. That's the challenge. One of my favorite things to do is to write characters who are, um, just a little inappropriate and unlikable, not unlikable, but, um, just t- sort of do the thing I wouldn't do. I'm a fairly like well-behaved person. And so part of the fantasy, I think, of writing is I take a character and I think, okay, what if what I would do is just like be passive aggressive and feel bad and complain to my wife, like later, what if this guy like goes over and like unplugs the guy's computer or, you know, and that's a lot of fun because you revisit your past and then you act in a way that you never did. Yeah. And I, I sometimes, I sometimes wish I could be more confrontational. Oh yeah. Like, do you ever find yourself admiring people who, even though, even though it's actually not advisable to be like them, even though you probably never would be like them, there's a part of you that's sort of like, kind of wish I could do that in yeah. the moment, be like sort of pugnacious and like mm-hmm. direct and dickish. And yeah, I don't know. Like, you know, like there's just uh you see this kind of unfold in like an airport or a train station or, you know, and there's going to be somebody like in your, who crosses your path who can do that. And, uh, 
yeah, I, it's, I find myself being like the guy at the bar who the bartender sort of never sees. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the, I mean, that's the writer thing, right? It's the flip side. Like on the one hand, we're great at observing. On the other hand, like not so great at participating. Right. Yeah. Right. Or like sort of jumping to the front of the line. And but you get it. You get, it. you get to do that in your fiction. Yeah, I do it a lot in my fiction. I definitely have characters who are a lot. And that's one of the hardest things for me is to remind myself when I'm writing. My instinct is to have the character do what I would do, which is boring as hell. <laughs> you know, I just feel bad. Yeah. Go write about it. Yeah. <laughs> so then I think, no, 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 that's not what he would do. He would, you know, he would say this. He would, you know, stop the elevator. He, you know, he would do the interesting thing. So very like the mantra in my head as I'm writing is like, don't be Ponyo. <laughs> <laughs> don't be yourself. That's the yeah, secret right don't there. Don't be yourself. It's secret to good writing. There don't you be go. yourself. So, okay. So you guys moved from Los Angeles to New York. I feel like that's kind of going against the, the grain a little bit. Everyone's seen yeah. everything you read. It's like, well, we moved back you moved, to be fair. You moved so we back. were in New York. Then we moved to LA Okay. and then we moved back to New York and you like it. You're glad you went yeah, back. I do. I have to say I do miss LA. Um, How long were you here versus seven years? Okay. And then I was in New York for about nine years. So okay. pretty close. Yeah. Pretty similar. Um, I liked LA, you know, I, I'm from East coast, New England. So LA, California in general has that appeal of, you know, like the sunny, it's a little exotic. Yeah. And I like the beach, you know, although I never swam in it. I swam in it like three times the entire time I was here. It's cold. It's, it's cold. So cold. Who knows what's in that water? Yeah. I little... tried surfing once, which is really also difficult. Yes. <laughs> Nobody tells you how hard it is. No, well, it's yeah. tiring. It's tiring. And it's also like, there's lots of people out there. And if you don't, if you're not good, yeah. like I, I just found people being very aggressive. Not, I mean, I shouldn't say that. There are just a couple times where people are like, dude, you know, yelling at you. And yeah. I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm trying not to die. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't need you critiquing me. Like, and then my board is like flying and almost hitting people. Yeah. And you know, it's just, I just, well, surfing is very often presented as this, you know, spiritual pursuit, but it, but it's hard. If you suck at it, there's like no spiritual element to me. It's yeah. just, just, just don't die really bad at don't die. Don't drown. Yeah. Don't lose the board. Speaking of surfing and spiritual and, uh, books, did you ever read that book? Barbar I think it's called Barbarian, Barbarian Days. Yeah. Uh, William Finnegan, right? Yeah. Um, I started it. I thought it was really good. It's yeah. just, I couldn't, it was such a big book. I had to back off, but I have a friend who's a devoted surfer and she loved the book. Yeah. I mean, that's, it, I think it's probably a hard book to do, but he was like the prototype California surfer. Yeah. He's like the first guy to ever, like he went to Fiji and surfed like the most famous wave there before anyone even knew it was there. Like he, yeah. he discovered waves, you know? Wow. I don't know. This is a fascinating book and uh, kind of, kind of enviable speaking of envy. Mm -hmm. Um, I find myself feeling a lot of that whenever I talk to people who lived in Southern California in like the mid century mm -hmm. who were kind of here before it got like super crowded. Right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, like, I do. God, that must've been sort of idyllic to be here in this cheaper. Yeah. Or you think about like the Bay area back, like, you know, my family lived in the Bay area for a couple of years in the seventies when I was a really little kid. Mm-hmm. And I think we were doing the math and this was like, you know, 10 or 12 or 15 years ago, but it was just like kind of one of those conversations with my folks where I was like, so you guys bought a house for $75,000 in the Bay area in 1973. If you had just kept that house, <laughs> you yeah. know, like, yeah. I mean, you would have made a mint, but, uh, you could yeah. actually live in these places and have some space and, you know, must've just been like paradise. See, I have the fantasy about, um, people like Finnegan and, uh, or like James Salter. I'm a big James Salter fan. And I was reading his collection of travel writing 
And he talks about like living in Paris and going over here and his story after story. And I think I never did that. I never just wandered around the world kind of writing and like eating like croissants in a random cafe and like picking up a German woman and writing a beautiful paragraph about right. it. You know, I just sort of like got out of college, got a job shortly thereafter, like got serious, had kids, got married, you know, like, and I just think I, I missed the sort of the vagabond like period of my life. Like that just didn't happen. Well, I think, I mean, again, to go back to envy and to go back to, um, I don't know, not regret necessarily, but it's a very easy game to play with yourself. Like what would mm-hmm. I do if I could do it over again? If I had my youth back, right. You know, cause you have this perspective now and you hopefully have like gotten yeah. a little wisdom, but I, you know, you hear it said, I think by people as they, you know, get older that they wish they would have taken more risks. Mm-hmm. And I think back to when I was like in my early twenties, like just go. I know. Like just work go. in a field. Like just travel around the world, see as much as you can see. I guess it's easy to say, and and it's easy to idealize that too, because it sounds great to go travel the world solo and like have a backpack and just be living right. hand to mouth. But like that can be really hard too, and yeah. lonely. So, well, you know, when I was twenty two and I had just moved to New York, or maybe I was twenty three, I'd lived there for about a year, and a friend of mine, one of my best friends, who lives in L.A., and he's a writer, Sam Sheridan and great guy. And we were, you know, like best friends growing up and he was living in Thailand. He went to train at a, at a kickboxing camp, like the hardcore called Fairtex where there's like almost no foreigners. It's just, you know, so he was training and training. We were emailing and he was having a good time, but it was, it was intense, like running in the rain and training. And and we'd both been martial arts guys, like ever since we were little kids. So, and he was trying to get me to come and I had my first publishing job as an assistant. Right. And he said, you know, why not just come train for six months? You'd be great at it. You know, and I'll try to like talk me into saying nice things about it. And I was like, well, I just got my first New York apartment. I have my first like New York job. I have like a girlfriend and got a New York girlfriend, <laughs> a New York girlfriend. Yeah. just put New York in front of everything. Got New York cheesecake, <laughs> going to the New York pharmacy, <laughs> Dwayne Reed. It's, it's all York, happening for me. New York credit card debt. And, uh, <laughs> and I didn't do it. And then that was a, that for me, that was like an easy thing to regret later. I think like, well, why don't I go hang out with Sam? Like hang out with my best friend in Thailand and like train in a camp and have like a professional fight. Like, holy shit, what an amazing story. But I didn't want to do it. I mean, I do fundamentally think you do what you want to do. I mean, obviously within the constraints like financial and, you know, family and obligations, but yeah. like I could have done it. I could have chucked the apartment. I didn't have any stuff. I had no family in the country. Like there was nothing holding me to America except my own interests, which were, I kind of want to see how things would play out. You know, I wanted to write. I wanted to like live in New York city and like see what it's like to live in a city. So looking back, like, I don't know that I would do it differently. That's true. That's true. Like you, yeah, it's very like hindsight's 2020 and it's very easy to just kind of like all of a sudden like plant yourself in Thailand, (laughs) but like the logistics of making that happen. Yeah. Uh, not not necessarily simple. And there are other things that, you know, keeping you like New York City in your 20s is pretty great, too. Yeah, I had a great time. I mean, it was it was some of the best years of my life. So, I bet. Um, so ultimately, it's it's funny. Re- re- regret's a weird thing. I mean, people say, you know, I, re- I regret nothing or and like, oh, no, no, sure. I regret stuff. But things like that, like, I don't know. I, I don't regret those. Yeah. So how are you? Uh, I mean, we were talking a little bit before we came on, uh, you know, on the air. Mm-hmm. about uh the times that we're living in like you know the anxieties of the age or whatever like mm. that's got to be seeping into your work and i mean how can how can it not you know it is in fact my car- my the book i'm working on now um it starts in 2014 yeah i mean 
and probably, I don't know, because I'm not done yet, but I feel like I want a hard stop for the election <laughs> because the election is just this giant shadow. Things change so much in America. And I thought I can't, you can't take that on at the end of the book. Um, so I, I guess I'm pushing it aside. No, there was like a, I was reading something. It was like some, some people who've been on the show, but they did like a essay for lit hub, I think about mm-hmm. how difficult it is to go on book tour in the age of Trump. Right. And there's also, you know, I think the, the overarching theme is that like, you know, this administration and all of the tensions in the country and anxieties like take up so much headspace that it's been bad for books in a way. Mm-hmm. Because people are just so preoccupied. I mean, I speak from uh, yeah. direct experience. I think a lot of us feel this way. It's like you're thinking about it a lot. You sort of wake up thinking about it some days even, you know, and it's, uh, that's pretty toxic. It really is. I, uh, certainly where with my, my reading has changed. I mean, I just, I, I don't, you know, I read so much on Twitter me too. I, I get stuck on Twitter and I'll go on Facebook too. And I just. Like I try and take days off where I don't read and then, you know, I don't read anything. And then I go back online and I'm like, what, what did I miss? Wait, who's been indicted? Like what? And <laughs> you, you can't even just tune out. You feel like you, I want to escape it, but then I, I need to know what's happening. Well, and this is the other thing about it is that for all of its toxicity, it is a great fucking story. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's in a, a you mess know, of a story. It, it is. It, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, especially once, I mean, we assuming we survive it all. No, everybody wants to get to the end of it yeah. and, then, and then go back and like reconstruct it and in yeah, a great way. Exactly. I know. I know. There's, I feel like there's a lot of people. I, I can't even, I can't even begin to guess how many books are going to be written about these times. Yeah. But there are a lot of people like at work on them right now as we speak. It's funny. I was thinking, um, I don't know if you, are you a big Philip Roth reader or not? Or, uh, not, no. not huge. I was a big fan. I mean, I still really love his stuff, but I was huge really into him when I was in my twenties. And then, and then he started writing the, the books that, you know, really put him on the map. I feel like American pastoral and, you know, there was, so I married a communist and, and, um, or I married a communist. I mixed that with the Mike Myers movie. Anyway, <laughs> so I married a communist axe murderer, murder. <laughs> great mashup. And, uh, anyway, the human stain and, and what he did in those was he, you know, he won the Pulitzer for American pastoral because he really started writing about like American events, like America, big, big history, you know, which he'd never done before. He'd just been that sort of almost like solipsistic, you know, great character. So then I thought, wow, I wonder if I, I, how do you do that as a writer? You know, it's like painting on a bigger canvas kind of thing. Yeah. He really like opened it up and I thought, how do you do that? And then I realized you just get older, like you live through history and then you think, well, how do I not include it? So like, yeah, I lived through nine eleven. Like I was in New York when it happened. Like now we're living through Trump, living through you know all these. Are you speaking for real? Like you lived through nine eleven, living. Yeah, literally, I was on the subway. The subway got stopped. I got ejected on like twenty eighth Street. I worked in the Flatiron Building, and I was living uptown. And suddenly, I didn't know what was happening. People were saying uh, people were going to parachute and invade the city. I mean, it was chaos. Like nobody knew what was happening. I watched the towers collapse. Jesus. And when it's happened, I mean, obviously it's terrible and I mean awful and. I, at the time, I wasn't thinking, oh, one day I'm going to write about it. I mean, it's been years and years. I haven't written about it yet. But I understand as a writer, like eventually history just becomes your life. Like you yeah. lived through it. And, so and then you, when you write about it, you're not doing big capital letter H. You're just writing about your life. That, and I think you you probably also exhaust the solipsism to a yeah, degree. Yeah, the personal material. Like how much navel gazing can a person, like once you get to like 50, you're like, okay. Yeah, I think that's a, that's very true. You know, eventually you just like, you can't keep writing about your boyhood or how bad you are as a surfer. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I could probably fill a few books about how bad I was as a surfer. It was a very brief career. 
Like I even like, I want to say like I, I geared up, like I got all the gear. Yeah. Then like spent like a month, like you, like in a disciplined way, trying to get under the water, like every other day. Yeah. And then once I realized that was, it wasn't going to happen. I was like, fuck this. And I like sold my, or gave my board to my friend and yeah. that was it. Um, another thing before I forget that I wanted to ask you about, cause you mentioned it earlier and I have a feeling that my listeners are going to be wondering about it is that you said that you were like deep into the martial arts. Yeah. You were an instructor. I was, yeah. I, I'm a third degree black belt in Taekwondo and, uh, and a black belt in the Hapkido. Like, so I used to teach. I used to, yeah. I had to, but I mean, like, do you still do it? I, I do it now and then I was doing for a while. Um, I was sort of trying different stuff to mix it up. I was doing, uh, I did Krav Maga most recently for a while, which was, which was enjoyable. Um, I like their gun and knife defense. It's very practical. Um, do you feel doing, confident that you could, if somebody attacked you, could you kick their ass? Uh, I do not feel confident because <laughs> I honestly think it's a little bit like a little bit of Socrates here. You know, Socrates, like he's the wisest man in the world. Cause he knows how ignorant it is. Yeah. He is. So when you study martial arts for real, you learn that you can get knocked out so easily. Like all it takes is one sucker punch. You're not paying attention and it's over. That's so right. knives, you just like any weapons, like you're, it's such a bad situation. Like, I think I do pretty well, like, but you just don't know. I mean, it's so easy for something to go wrong. And we're not have... made to take abuse. Like we're pretty fragile yeah. as, as just as like, as our bodies go, we can't take much punishment. Did, so did you yeah. listen to that podcast? Uh, Dirty John. Did you happen to no, listen? I didn't listen to that it was like all the rage. It was like the number one podcast in America. Okay. But it's uh it's like a six part true crime. Oh, okay. I can't, I don't want to talk to you about it. Yeah. Don't, I'm going to listen to it. Yeah. Cause it's uh, it, you could, you could, your flight back to New York. Yeah. Like I'll, I, I'll check it. That's you're, perfect. You're going to thank me. Yeah. It'll take up the whole thing. You'll be obsessed, but uh, it speaks to what you were just talking about. And I guess like a question is if you're a third degree black belt in two different martial arts, is mm -hmm. that right? Like, if you're not practicing regularly, like doing yeah. the moves and stretching mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff, like, do you retain it? You do. Um, the tricky thing with something like Taekwondo is a lot of the kicking, uh, is, I mean, you're not going to kick someone in the face if you're not stretched out. Yeah. But frankly, uh, it's a little more effective to kick someone like to the body and the legs anyway. I mean, look, it's, it's hard to kick someone in the head cause the head's really mobile. Right. right? And you got to get your leg up there. And while you're doing it, like, Hey, your groin's exposed. Like, yeah. Right. So, <laughs> right. Um, but the hop keto stuff is really good. It's a lot like jujitsu, like a lot of locks and, um, joint manipulation and like elbow breaks and sort of horrible things. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because when I was training, I, I was a mix of like, um, a bit of a romantic because I started it when I was like, well, first when I was six, but then again, for real, when I was about 12. So I thought, oh, this is going to solve my problems. I'm going to be amazing. I'm going to be able to fight everyone. And like, that's how you think when you're a 12 year old boy, like, yeah. I'm going to be the best. And then, and then there's the pragmatic part of me, which is like, why am I learning like these really obscure moves, which I'm never, I would never use in a fight, like a double arm block and, you know, these, these really esoteric things, um, instead of doing things like, why are the things that are most dangerous? Like you never kick to the groin or to the legs because it's really painful. I'm like, isn't that what we're going for? Right. <laughs> isn't that the point of this? Yeah. It seems like the most effective and horrible shit is the stuff you're not allowed to do. And I understand like, you don't want to hurt your partner, but there's gotta be a way. So that's just a roundabout way of saying like, there's a lot of really horrible, easy shit you can do if you're not flexible. Okay. So, so I'm, I'm not too worried. Even if, yeah, I feel safer just knowing that you have these skills. I, I feel like most stuff you can also just get out of. I think people can smell when you, when you're like, all right, sure. If we, if we're going to do this right? <laughs> and they're like, well, forget it. Like it's not worth it. No one really wants to get hurt. You ever watch like dogs fight? 
Like, like they don't go all the way. They don't, you know? yeah. So I feel like humans are a little bit like that, too. If they sniff around, they're like, all right, this guy might fight back. I mean, I might still win, but, like, I don't want to even get hurt. Then I'll leave I've you never thrown a punch in my life. I'm like, I punched my sisters a couple of times when I was a kid, but like, <laughs> that's, that's my level of uh, intensity. But, you know, like, n- never been in a fight. Yeah. And it has crossed my mind. Like, I don't even know how I would respond. Um, you'd probably freeze. That's what most people do. You know, we used to do these drills with like the gear, the super gear, or, like the helmets and stuff. Yeah. And at this point, I'd been training for a while. I was like a red belt. And I thought I was really tough. And we turned all the lights off, pitch black. And I'm just standing in the middle of the room. I don't know where it's coming from. And suddenly chuck this guy ex-marine he's in all the gear suddenly he just chart like tackles me to the ground and it took like a good two seconds before i did anything i just fro i just got tackled and i was like oh shit oh my god you know and you just first few times like you just panic it's biology yeah and then i was like oh okay okay i gotta you know find something and find your way out but so um Actually, Sam, my friend Sam Sheridan, I was mentioning, he he writes about this and about how everyone says, like, oh, well, you rise to the occasion. He goes, actually, you, you sink to the level of your training. <laughs> so I always think, like... It doesn't bode well for me at all. <laughs> yeah, but, you know... Uh, what do you recommend to somebody who has never thrown a punch in his life, Okay, has no training in the martial arts whatsoever, <laughs> somebody, I'm walking down a dark, you know, a dark street or something, somebody comes out of nowhere and just tackles me. What, what would you recommend to the lay person that I do? Just bite just do whatever the fuck I can to get out of there. Or... I mean, you're tagged. You're on the ground. Yeah. Oh, shit. Get off the ground as fast as possible. You don't want to be down. It's a okay. bad place to be. Okay. I mean, yeah, just like go for go for the cheap stuff, like the groin kick. What if somebody comes up to me with a knife? Just give me your money, man. That's it. Knives are so dangerous. They are really underestimated. Yeah. I know. Um, my wife thinks it's funny. She's like, "You're you're terrified of knives." I'm like, "I've just done knife defense," and. You just, you get shredded. It's so, so not in the cool, like gym way. I mean, like you get, it's a little, a knife, like you get stabbed five times before you even know it happened. It's, it's just, they're so fast and so dangerous. So you just give the money or or run or run That's it. or better yet, like throw the wallet and then run the other way. Okay. You know, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's not much of a hero story. Sorry. So last martial arts question. If you get a third degree, I mean, you get your black belt and the various degrees. Yeah, you keep going. Yeah. Uh, what do you have to do? Like, what, how do they, how do they, like, what hoop how do they have to evaluate? Jump What's the criteria? Yeah. Well, it takes a while. I mean, uh, I got my first degree black belt when I was, I don't know, 18, I think, or 19. And then second degree was a couple of years later. And third degree wasn't for another four years. It's kind of up to your instructor. And the tests just get more and more elaborate and more um, challenging. Like, you get attacked by multiple people. You get attacked. I remember my third degree black belt test, I got attacked by a guy with a sword. That was scary. <laughs> like a real, like, is it straight up sword? And if he cut you, it would. It, I mean, I'm hoping he would have stopped. <laughs> but I mean, like, it wasn't like a dummy sword. It was a real no, sword. No, no, it, it was a metal sword. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay. Um, here we go. <laughs> Guys attacking me with a sword. Wow. Uh, you know, I'd done some, like, knife and sword and bat defense and sort of used it. But um, so, yeah, it got hairy. It got pretty, pretty intense. Um, they better have some insurance policies. They got, I know who, I was honestly a little thrown when the sword came out. I I didn't see us going to like, so like sharp edged weapons. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what you have to mean. It's a third degree. You got to do something to differentiate from the second degree. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, okay. So novel. And do you, do you have any interest in writing in, um, like for film and television, is that? Something? I do actually. Wrote, I wrote because I live in LA, so like everyone here, I need to write TV scripts. Yeah, um, I wrote a pilot 
comedy actually and then i wrote a sort of a drama um with my wife we did we wrote that together your wife was, molly ringwald that's right that's a past the guest on this program yeah i feel like when i had her on the show i feel like i should say this i'll convey an apology <laughs> through you to her i asked her too many john hughes questions yeah you gotta balance them out i do i felt i went i just i could it was my i felt like it was my one shot and i just i i, I overdid it all right well she didn't complain to me so there you go all right but um, uh you wrote one with her i did yeah and th- it was actually really fun to I don't know if you've ever written with your, is your wife a writer? No. Okay. Um, we'd never really written together except like little stuff. So it was weird cause we have such different, um, styles of writing. Uh, she's a wonderful writer. She thinks so much about character, of course. I mean, cause I guess cause she's an actor as well. Yeah. And I like to discover it as I go. So we, it was, I think, very frustrating for her, frankly. Does she outline? She, oh. she outlines, and I, don't, I barely outline, just very loosely, and then I change things as I go. So she, we'd be sitting there, and she'd say, okay, well, what about this character, like, you know, Maria? Did she go to college? Did she get along with her dad? Did she get, and I was like, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. She's like, what do you mean it doesn't matter? I'm like, I don't need it. It doesn't matter. It's not in the scene. I just want to, I just want to go. She's in the, and she's like, well, I need to know like, what's her education level? What's her interest? You know, I'm like, I don't want to know. I don't want, she's like, how can you not want to know? Because I don't want to know it until it's useful. Right. Right. Until like it comes out in some way. Um, it was, I think really, really aggravating for her. We had to find like a compromise. So I would so agree to some basic outlining, but then we waited until the second draft to like really get into the to the, the details of the character. I feel like, I feel like having a background in acting, like acting training and experience would, would probably really serve you well. Oh, it's amazing. It's a huge gift. Like when she writes, her characters are completely three dimensional and believable and people empathize with them like almost immediately. Yeah. Like it's, it, a, it's a real talent. Because that, I mean, that's a lot of, I mean, there is a lot of acting, even for a non-actor, there's a lot of acting in writing fiction. Yeah. You're, you're a puppeteer essentially. Yeah, absolutely. When you're writing, especially, you know, you're writing a scene and you, I, I, I find myself making the little face facial expressions they're doing. And yeah. Yeah. And like, if you, I think, I feel like too, like if I'm, if you're emotionally reacting to your own work, like as silly as it sounds, that's usually a good sign. Yeah. I mean, no, it is I, it's versus, funny. versus just sitting there like completely like stone stoic, <laughs> staring dully at the, at the screen. No, I used to, I, I used to make fun of my wife cause she would, she'd write a scene and it'd be really emotional. She would cry, right? She cries pretty easily to be fair. And I would of course mock her for this, like a real bastard. And, and then one day I was writing a scene and I started to tear up a little. I'm like, Oh, Oh, if you do it really well, you do cry. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that. She was onto something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, you know, speaking of Molly, uh, I read recently the essay that she wrote for the New Yorker. Yeah, that was a great like, essay. Like, you know, I, I feel like especially over the past couple of weeks, but then today it's the Louis C.K. news mm-hmm. um, and living in Los Angeles and having proximity, at least geographically or whatever, to the entertainment industry, but also just socially. Like, I know a lot of people who work in entertainment. I've dabbled in it myself. And like, um, you obviously are in the same boat. Yeah. Like, did you realize... The, I guess you probably knew more than I would, but I mean, like it's, it's been really interesting to say the least to see all of these rocks upturned and to see just how systemic and yeah. gross a lot of the business is. I mean, I think I, I knew about some of it, you know, through rumors and things people said, but I honestly, and this is, a, you know, a fault of mine. I just never thought the day would come. It just seemed like, oh, this is like the gross price of the business like this is just what happens people exploit each other and they you know treat each other badly and that's just like human nature is like preying on each other because they're because some people are awful 
Um, do you think that Hollywood is worse than other industries or do you think it's pretty much the same and it's just like a, it's a know, male power thing or I think Hollywood's a little worse. Um, because I think in Hollywood specifically, there's that myth of like the creative success, right? So if you're, if you're great at something, you're successful, you can, you, you're given a pass to a large degree. I think you're given a pass in general if you're successful. Like I'm sure there's horrible CEOs out there, but I do feel like the corporate world is a little more careful about that and you can get called out on things and you have things like human resources departments. But like if you're just sort of a predatory producer, um, I just feel like you were more insulated. Yeah. And so many people want to do it and you know, yeah. and yeah, that's the other side. The other thing also is, and this is by no means a defense of anyone, but um, it's very complicated because some people are attracted to power or some people. So in the mix of this horrible predation, right? You've also got people who maybe are consensual. And so then it gets really confusing because I think if you are a victim, you're like, well, is that, that person's not a victim. So am I misinterpreting it? You know? So I think it gets really hard. You can't, it's not just like one person just like slaughtering person after person. Right. There's like, there's like a very, yeah, there's a very intricate tapestry of weird and shitty behaviors in Hollywood. And And so you're like, where is this in the, you know, in the range? And, and, and I also think a big part of it is, you know, people, and this keeps coming up in the reports you read and from things people say is like people fundamentally like, they deny it because they don't want it to have happened to themselves too. They're like, this can't be happening. Like this person can't be doing that. Like there's no way. And so you try and you try and think your way out of a situation and like escape it. And then afterwards you're like, is that, wait, was it, was that just like an assault? Like what just happened? Yeah. Like I'm thinking of like the Louis CK stuff, you know, well, where the, they're like, no, this can't be, this must be a joke. No, I have a friend. I have a friend who I sat down with for call, co- you know, for coffee years ago, this is five, six, seven years ago, probably. And I remember her and she had been at parties with Louis CK mm-hmm. and I was like talking to her. And I was probably like, I love his show. You know, like, right. like, like the total, yeah, like, I know he's very funny. Yeah. Very yeah. funny guy. And like, yeah. I, you know, whatever it was. Cause we were probably talking about like screenwriting stuff and I don't know. And I remember her being like, yeah, I, I was at a party with him and it was like late and he was drunk and everyone was drunk. And like, then I'm in the kitchen, but I don't think she was alone. I, yeah. like, the point that I'm getting at is that she basically said like, turn around and all of a sudden I look around and Louis has got his dick in his hand. Right. And what I remember thinking at the time or like how I processed it, cause I was mm-hmm. reviewing this in my head today. Like how, how did I continue to like, right. where did I go from there? Yeah. Where did yeah. I go from there? I think like what I thought was, Oh, he's, you know, he's really hammered. Right. And he's got some issues. You're right. And it, but I didn't, I didn't see it as like menacing in the way that I probably should have. Yeah. Or maybe it was cause I, I my memory's bad. Like, did she convey it to me as a menace? Yeah. And it was some sort of reflexive denial. Like he's too funny. He couldn't have possibly. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? You don't yeah. want to believe that awful thing. No, no, you don't. I mean, the tendency to think well of people and to, and to want things to be good can blind you to a lot. Well, and I was talking to a female friend of mine today and we, you know, further on in the conversation, she was like, you know, I think a lot of the problem is that, you know, there are quote unquote good men. Mm-hmm who usually are friends with other good men. Like if you're a right. good guy and you're not into like abusing people, right. Then your friends are also good yeah. guys. And so yeah. like, you know, it becomes this kind of closed loop. Mm-hmm. And then you have women who are like, you know, your, your female friends might be like, listen, there are a lot of fucked up guys out there who yeah. are jerking off in front of people and abusing people and mm-hmm. using and like as good guys who are in this closed loop of other good guys. You're like, 
really? Like, is it really that bad? Because you're not yeah. exposed to it. Right. And so like, my friend's not doing that. Yeah. No, no one I know is no doing that. No one I know is doing that. And right. so that, I don't know, that brought the point home to me. I was like, oh yeah, like that's, that makes a lot of sense. You're pr- I mean, that's usually the case that yeah. you're probably going to be only friends with other people who are not abusers. But then think about people, you know, guys, girls who aren't, or, you know, who are good people who have their, their act together who might be friends with somebody and have no idea mm-hmm. that's gotta be, that, that's gotta be really hard to have like yeah. a relationship with somebody you realize over all these years. Um, I mean, though, I, I don't know how you could be friends with Harvey Weinstein and not know something was going on. <laughs> yeah. That one you had to know about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that one was just a mess, but, uh, the last yeah. thing I'll say about it is that, uh, one of the things that I've been, um, asking myself is like, why now? Why is it all coming out now? Yeah, like, like it's it, that's yeah. an interesting point. Like, it's a curiosity to me. Like, I think well, a lot of it might be sublimated Trump rage. I think that's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's like, come, like, come on, this is this is nuts. Do you think it's a big permanent change? Like, do you think it's like really revolutionary, and we're going to look back on it as like a there's like a line of demarcation? I hope it is. I mean, I feel it. You know, okay, so I'm 42, and I like to think I'm a fairly like decent guy, a feminist, etc. But when I look back, I think you know there are those moments where. I remember this has happened to me a number of times where I'm walking down the street. This is in New York. This happened when I was in my twenties a lot and a woman would walk by, right? Attractive woman. And another guy, an absolute stranger would look at her and then look at me and say like, look at that or like sweet ass or whatever he'd say. I don't know. Some generic yeah. thing. Right. And I would think like, what? Like why, why I've like nothing to talk to you about. Like we're strangers. Like great. She's pretty. Um, and I just would respond to it just with a kind of a blank look. But then I think, is the next generation going to be like, dude, you're gross. Like, is the next, like, do you need to, I don't mean to just shame, but I mean like to be like, look, I'm not tacitly part of this like objectification shit. Not to say like, I don't find a beautiful woman beautiful, but like, I certainly don't need to talk to a stranger about it. You know, I can just keep that in my head. Like, wow, she's pretty. Right. And I think like, how am I implicit? I complicit in this. You right. Know, and how have I been just kind of like letting shit go that it didn't seem that bad, you know, like some guy saying like, sweet ass, you know, like looking at me like, why did I not feel the need to jump in and, 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 you know, call this guy out? Um, again, I don't know that we need to go around like shaming everyone and like shushing everyone, but I do feel like the general culture of like objectification and like sexism, like I was a part of it without really, really acknowledging it. Sure. And now I'm thinking like, Oh fuck. Like, yeah, I guess like you get enough guys who don't speak up who just sort of like nod their head or just turn away. And those guys think they can do even more. That's right. So I do hope that the next generation and hopefully us too, will be like, no, it's like, they'll speak up. So if you do have friends or like, you know how you, sometimes you're with a group of guys and they're all good friends and then they'll have like a crazy fucking brother right? Yeah, right. and the brother comes in and he'll just say some like weird, offensive, like weird shit, whether it's like sexist or racist or whatever, just stuff you are not interested in. So because it's your friends and your friend's brother, you just like leave, you know, you're like, you know, I'm just not interested in hanging out here. But sometimes leave. you can't say anything. Sometimes you can't. I mean, it just like it would be, or it would just be like more trouble turn than into it's a worth. Huge thing. But right. I just feel like, I don't know those situations. Yeah. You kind of have to call them as you see them. Right. But I think one of the dangers, and I'm not, I'm not trying to argue with this, but I think one of the dangers is to think like, Oh, I'm a good guy. My friends are good guys. We're not the problem. These other villains are the problem, but I think it's like a sliding scale. And so when it becomes like a morality thing, like no one wants to think they're the good guy or the bad guy. Well, no one's thinking the bad guy. Everyone wants to think they're the good guy, but I think like we should just look at our behavior and not even judge it as far as like good and bad is just a sort of like supportive or not supportive. 
Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's just too semantic-y. No, no. I mean, it's like, it's like, I'm glad to have the conversation and like, I need to think about, I need to think more about this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, when it was all coming out and I thought like, well, like what, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do about it? Right. You know, like obviously you believe people and you support people, but like you see things, especially on Twitter, you see it on Facebook. Like that's not enough. People are still pissed, right? They need more. So I'm like, all right, what am I not doing? You know, well, you got to talk about it on a podcast. Is there what you, you got go. to do. Changing the world, lighten <laughs> it up. <laughs> well, listen, man, uh, congratulations on your collection. Thank you for making you. time. I know you just got off of a plane. You were supposed to have a reading tonight. You <laughs> I didn't love have... that. <laughs> Tomorrow night. Man. You went to my old address. I mean, you know, I, know, like, I was really enjoyed. Good thing I'm not a surgeon. It's been like <laughs> three dead bodies tonight. It's been an odyssey, but it's great to catch up with you five years after the fact. And uh, I wish you well on the novel, on life in New York. Um, and, uh, with your family and, you know, hopefully we'll get a chance to sit down again in another few years when the book comes out. Yeah. That'd be great. All right, guys, there you go. That's Panio Giannopoulos. His story collection is called how to get into our house and where we keep the money. It's available now from four way books. Check it out. How to get into our house and where we keep the money. Uh, you can find him online at PanioGianopolis.com. His Twitter handle is at Panio P A N I O. Uh, great guy. Great to see him and a great writer. So go get this collection, how to get into our house and where we keep the money. Thanks to kill Rockstars as always for the music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Don't forget about the other people app. If you don't have that yet, don't forget about, uh, the, uh, Patreon situation, patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you're interested in that, uh, what else? What am I forgetting? Oh, if you want to email me, the address is letters at other PPL.com letters at other PPL.com. I think those are logistics. So it's, you know, just to put a finer point on it, people can behave monstrously. There is such a thing as monstrous behavior from humans, but human beings are not monsters. Or is that wrong? Are people monsters? I get, I get uncomfortable when there's the conflating of the two because human beings are human beings. Some human beings behave monstrously. Does that mean they're monsters? Are we getting silly when we start calling people monsters? Or am I overthinking this? Maybe it's fine. I don't know. I want to say there's a really intelligent argument for why you shouldn't call people monsters. But you're not going to hear it here. <laughs> Just don't have a full grasp of this, as usual. That's what I do. That's my service to uh, the human community. So I come up with like like half-realized ideas, which hopefully the listeners get to uh, complete in their spare time. It's like, like basically like you're sitting there listening, like correcting me as you go. That's part of the pleasure of listening to me. I hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. I hope you didn't behave like a monster. You're a monster. <laughs>